Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. This series explores the letters to the churches in Revelation and how they speak to us today. Let's jump right into today's teaching. I'm deeply touched by the way the worship that Corey and others have prepared and prayers and readings um, weave together and support the opening of the scriptures. I thank you for that. Brought a few things with me this morning. And I brought my hammer and a screwdriver, um, paintbrush, pair of scissors, and I usually carry a pen. Just think about what you need to make each one of these things work. I'll come back to that a little later. We'll come back to that. How would you define a successful church today? One that's dynamic. I think if you ask churches across certainly North America, uh, you get a lot of answers. Some would say it's dynamic worship. Um, others would say it's preaching of God's word. Others would say it's a very unique outreach to wherever they are. You would get a lot of different answers. We know that. And in some ways, each one is right. Each one is a part of the truth, as it were, for that. Sometimes we need to ask what I call a better question. And that is, how would God define a successful church? One that I call has got all A's. What makes a church successful by God's criteria? That may be the only question that really matters. That one matters. So here in Revelation 7, sorry, chapter 3 this morning, um, we read about a church that gets all these from God. No condemnation, no censure. All these from God. You're going to hear about that in a minute. So please, would you stand with me? The scripture reading this morning is from Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. Please turn to Revelation 3 in your Bible or follow along on the sermon notes handout or the words on the screen. Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem 
which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. The city of Philadelphia was founded by a king called Atalus, who had a deep love for his brother, who was called Philadelphus. So he called the city after him. In these seven letters, each of the letters to the churches contain usually commendation and censure. This is the only letter, the only letter that contains all words of praise. There's no correction. There's no complaint. There's no call to repentance. So it must say something to us. Philadelphia was a city on, a, on the edge of a volcanic area. As a result, it had hot medical springs. Um, many people came to the area for healing. What brought prosperity also brought danger. Philadelphia was subject to earthquakes. Citizens often lived in a state of fear. At any time, they had to be ready to flee the city and head for open country. The city had been destroyed once before in 17 AD. When everything settled down, they would come back. The original purpose of the city was actually to spread the Greek language, Greek culture, and everything Greek. So it was kind of a missionary city, but not for the gospel as we know it, but for Greece and everything Greek. I realize when we read these things and these letters that there are many, many different pictures and ideas. I usually seek one key thing. What is the thing that really rises as a word at the top for us this morning? I believe that to be central. We must hear it today. Jesus says to this church, <coughs> I know that you have little strength. The Greek word is dunamis, from, we, we, from which we get a word dynamic. He said, I know that there's nothing really dynamic happening at this church. In other words, this church did not have a great deal of importance in the life of the city. Perhaps it had no political power, very little prestige. Maybe there was no important people from the city came to his congregation, little money, no grand buildings. So you get the idea. Frankly, it didn't have a whole lot going for it. You would not give this church a second look. It was not on the top 10 list of churches for a pastor's conference. There's no bestsellers written about this church. Nothing really special. So in the eyes of the city, there was little to give it marks for success. But in the eyes of Jesus, the one who holds the keys of David, the one who has real insight and real authority, in the eyes of Jesus, whose his opinion is the only one that really matters, this relatively unimportant church stands out for unqualified praise. So we need to ask why. Here's what the Lord says about this insignificant church. I know that you have little strength, dunamis, dynamo, but you have kept my word and you have not denied my name, verse 8, and you have kept my command to endure patiently, verse 10. You see, folks, God does not use the same measure for success that we use. Large does not automatically equal success. Small does not automatically mean more spiritual. So we need to be careful of status and anti-status. When you read this letter, God's criteria for success is aligned, I think, with one basic 
spiritual truth, faithfulness. That essential quality comes up again and again. So we might say out of this letter that we are called to be faithful to his word. It says, you've kept my word. Now, it might be real easy for us to say, well, you know, we believe in the Bible. After all, we're, we're Central Baptist Church. We bring our Bible to church, most of us. We're a church that holds to the truth of the scriptures. You, you look up our statement of faith and, and you see the things all listed there. Can I say to as though that does not automatically mean we're biblical Christians? We need to ask ourselves some honest questions between one Sunday and the next. How much time and attention do we give to this book, which we say is the Holy Word of God? Be honest for a moment. What's the most common obstacle we face in doing serious Bible study in our personal lives? What is it? Time. Time. And I know that it's very easy for any one of us to come down, to come home at the end of a day, and we just kind of plunk ourselves down, and we put on the news, and we watch television. But can I say to you this morning that the real challenge with television is not time. The real challenge to television is the way in which television in our culture has changed how we think. You see, before television, we used words. People and families actually talked to each other. Thinking was done in the printed word. Television changed all that. And in television, we move from words to visual images. We move from content to facts, to feeling and emotion. We move from exposition to entertainment. And so beyond that, we now see almost everything in terms of entertainment. Even the news has to be entertaining or will change channels to find better news. Television has moved us from cognitive and objective analysis, which takes time and reflection, to the quick comment, the rapid images that come in 30-second interviews. In-depth reporting now means something which lasts more than 60 seconds. One of the things that television has done is that in a number of top-rated TV sitcoms, it involves people who are in gay, lesbian relationships. And let me ask you to think about this. You will not only get that in the programs, you know where you get that? You also get that in the advertising. I caught one this week. I won't tell you the company. I might get arrested or something. <laughs> but it was a men's clothing store, which was giving men opportunity to buy things for the weddings. And one of the couples that they brought up as their models, as it were, was a gay couple. Television not only reflects life, television shapes life. And so coming to the word of God Sunday by Sunday or day by day and seeing it as an authority calls really for a mindset which is pre-television. It calls for a mindset that works with words rather than pictures. It calls for thinking rather than entertainment. 
Now, let me just very quickly this morning give you, give you really what's called a mnemonic. Mnemonic's a Greek word for how do you remember things, okay? And just very simple, and you've got a diagram for you in your notes, I think, this morning to hold up your hand. Just, just think about your hand. Your little finger. That says very simply, the first thing you do is read. And so we have to read God's word, not just an occasional verse here or there. Um, I don't want to get into trouble with somebody, but um, you know those little books you used to get where you could pop out and there was a verse for the day? Could I suggest you put them on a shelf somewhere? Read a whole chapter. Read a whole book. You get the story. So switch off the television set. And remember your little finger, you find a comfortable seat, read a whole book of the Bible. There you'll find some of the best history, drama, romance, murder, political intrigue that you can find anywhere else. By the way, there's a whole book about sex. The next finger tells you to study. Don't just read what's on the surface. Start to dig down what's beneath the surface. You have today in computers and Google and things, some of the best tools and resources that you can find to do good Bible study. When I was in seminary 60 years ago, we had to buy books, whole volumes of books. I've got them in my library. They're like this long. You've got them in a computer. You've got them in your cell phone these days. So take advantage of that and use them. The middle finger is to memorize. We live in a culture that's trained us to forget. That's why we've got all kinds of devices to help us remember. But we need to go back and rediscover an old skill that's the ability to memorize. Then you can do the next step, which is your next finger. That means you meditate. Now, that, you might sound to you, well, I don't meditate. That's, isn't that something from Eastern mysticism or somewhere? No. Meditation has a deep biblical history. And I'm told, I, I'm not a farm boy, I'm a city boy, but I'm told that memorization, the picture behind that, really comes from farming. It actually comes from cows. Cows, I'm told, have got four stomachs, or four parts to the stomach, I'm not sure which. And so after a cow has wandered over a field and eaten some nice green grass, they can sit down under a big tree, and they do what we call chewing the cud. That means that they can move their food from one stomach to the next stomach and chew it and re-chew it again. The polite word for that is to ruminate. And that's what we're invited to do in memorization and then meditation. We're invited, if we know the Bible in our mind, we're invited to ruminate, to bring it back into our mind again and again and again. There should be verses that you've memorized then you can meditate on them. There should be chapters that you've memorized. Then you can meditate on them. We have the essential truth of the scriptures in our minds and in our memory banks. And when we have that, we then can go back into the truth, bring it back over us and go over it again and again and again. There's lots of stuff we do around the house and we do every day that you don't really need a whole lot of, of intellectual ability for, but it's in your stuff that's in your mind. You can bring that back and you can meditate on it. Go over it, go over verses again and again. And finally, what do you need to work with a hammer and a screwdriver, scissors, a paintbrush, a pen? You know what you need? 
you need your thumb. Because you really can't hammer much without your thumb. The hammer needs the pressure and the tension that you can come from the your thumb. That's what it needs. That's why in the book of Judges, this is kind of a gross story, by the way, the punishment for some people was that they cut their thumbs off. Because then they could not hold a weapon. They couldn't hold a spear. The other thing was that they also cut their big toes off. Because you can't run and you can't march without your big toes. So what do you need? You need your thumb. And that's, you need to do it. You need to take the word that you know, that you've read, you've studied, that you've memorized and you've meditated on, and you act on it. You do it. You put your thumb as it were to work in your life. Spiritual maturity does not come from what we know. Spiritual maturity does not come because you come here on a Sunday morning, but rather how much we know and we hear here, we translate into action. We put into action in our lives and daily living. And the Bible needs to be applied in specific ways in our lives. Jesus knew that. And Jesus teaches that. Remember the passage that we find in um, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, Man, he means all of humanity, every person, does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, here's your Greek lesson for this morning. The usual word for word in the Bible is the word logos. In the beginning was the word, the logos. Logos is your normal word, five letters, L-O-G-O-S. But here in Matthew 4 and 4, when Jesus says every word that comes from the mouth of God, he uses a different word. The word he uses is rhema. And rather than meaning the word of God in general, it's the logos of God. Rhema has the sense of a specific word, meaning a specific application, a specific sense. It applies to this situation. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He says we're called to know and to be faithful to the word, not just in some general vague way, but in the specific detail, specific situations. Let me take you a passage, you know, Ephesians chapter 6. You take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now that's the word rhema again. It's saying in specific situations, you need to have the word of God in your life, in your mind. And you need to know as you use your thumb and hold on to the sword of the spirit, you need to know how to apply it to this situation of temptation or difficulty or whatever it is. The question really we're asking ourselves in all of our lives is, what kind of life would we like to have? What kind of life would you like to have? Do you want a life that just blows away like the dust in the wind is gone? Or would you like to build a life that stands strong and fruitful like a tree? Well, the answer is found in Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers, but delight is in the law of the Lord. And catch this one. In the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night. They will be like trees planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, it prospers. Not so the wicked. 
They're like the chaff that blows away with the wind. What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of life do you want to have? In the seven or eight months or whatever we've been at Central, and every other church we've served either full-time or in an interim way, my primary goal to church is to speak into them that we know what the Bible says and teaches on the issues of life, money, family, how to live a wise life, how to make biblical decisions about marriage, about sexuality, and then to live lives that are faithful to what it says, no matter which way the wind blows in our society. Public opinion these days is often wrong. We need to know the word of God. And over some 50 years, my personal goal has been simply this, five words. I don't think they're on the screen because they didn't get this version of the notes. So you may want to write them down, five words. This is what I've tried to do, to nurture thinking Christians who think Christianly. Got it? Those are my five words for my life. Thinking Christians who think Christianly. Actually, that's four. No, it's five. Can't count. We're called to be faithful to his word. We're called to be faithful to his name. He says to this church, I know that you have little strength, but you kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Did you catch how Corey had picked up for worship this morning? The name of God out of Psalm 8, one of our worship songs. God's name is our character, his character. The New Testament calls us to honor his name. Scott picked that up in referring to the Lord's Prayer as he prayed with us this morning. In the Bible, the name of God, the name of Jesus, refers to their character. It's the integrity of who they are. So if I say to someone, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, it means that I take the name of the Lord, I acknowledge his character, and more than that, I align myself in my life with his character. Do you know the word Christian actually only appears three times in the New Testament? Twice in the book of Acts and once in 1 Peter. Peter says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, a thief, or any kind of criminal, even as a meddler. But if you are a Christian, if you're one of those Christ follower people, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. We just need to acknowledge in life that some suffering comes to us as a direct result of our own choices. Some of them may be sinful, some may be good. The Bible says, whatever we sow, we reap. Hosea adds to that, he says, if you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. In some of life, it's not so much that God is punishing us. Satan is not attacking us. We simply get what we've chosen. Some suffering also comes because we live in a fallen world. Faith in God is not an escape from sickness and death, disease. We know that. But Peter acknowledges that some suffering and struggle may come when we are faithful to the name of Christ. Our inner voice dictates what we must do, and that collides with the world and culture outside. Then the question is, 
Are we willing to be faithful to the name of Jesus? And again, we are called to be faithful in the circumstances of life. Jesus says to this church, you've kept my commandment and you stuck by it. We may not like the name Henry Morgan Teller. If you remember who he is, he was synonymous with the whole abortion movement. But if you will allow me some daring license for a moment and not misunderstand me, let me suggest that here in Henry Morgan Teller, we find a man who had endurance to his cause. He persisted, he battled through, he took setbacks in stride, he did not quit. He believed in what he was doing. He did not allow many defeats to finish him and give up. And we will disapprove entirely for what he stood for. But please understand, here was someone who had steadfastness to his cause. In contrast, I wonder if many times our commitment to the cause of the gospel of Christ pales in comparison. We have problems with inconvenience, never mind sacrifice. We lose steam at the first obstacle. And many times the obstacles in life that we face, we need to realize that they're not there to make us stop or to make us take an alternate route. They're put in front of us to put character and stamina into our lives. That's what James says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face the trials of many lives, trials of many kinds, because you know, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. Now, we would all say in our lives, we want to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Then James says, that's what the trials of life are for. To bring that strength and stamina into your life. And one of the deepening, maturing aspects of our faith is that we're willing to sow seeds of faithfulness in areas of our lives and ministry in which we may not see the immediate results. Get that. We may not see the results at all but we're still called to be faithful. We do not have to see the end. Sometimes we're caught in the tension between what I would call the faith to obey and the faith to hope. Let me take you back for a moment to one of the classic stories of the Old Testament. Um, we know it in Genesis chapter 22. In case you're not familiar with it, here's what it's all about. It's about Abraham who's told by God to take his son Isaac up to a mountain, Mount Moriah, and has to be willing to gather all the, the stuff to sacrifice him. Now, I don't think any one of us can enter into all of the emotion of that event, the drama. At one level, there's a story about obedience, but that doesn't get the point. The real drama of the story is that this was not any son. This was Isaac, in whom the entire future and promise of Israel lay. 
Now you need to go back a little bit and remember your Old Testament history. You remember that Abraham and Sarah are promised a baby. And they're doing all the kind of right things for that to happen, and yet nothing happens. And so Sarah asked Abram, Abram to go and sleep with Hagar, who's her handservant, maidservant. And out of that relationship, I call that procreational sex. Out of that relationship, Ishmael's born. That's another whole story and problem all by itself. And then later on, Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. So the lineage of Israel as a nation is to come through Isaac. So now do you understand how important he is? Isaac is the son of promise. If Isaac is killed, how will the whole future of Israel unfold? If Isaac is killed, the story comes to an end. The story of Israel will not continue. It's a story you see about the tension between the present and the future between the faith to obey and the faith to hope. It's a story about the tension between obedience and promise. And what this story really teaches us is that there are times that we feel the attention, the tension between doing, doing what seems to be right for the present, for the moment, for the immediate. But if we do that, that very action will amputate the future in hope. So what are we to do, folks, when obedience today may kill our vision and hope for tomorrow? What do we do? That story and so much more teaches us that we are called to do what is right in front of us. To address what is on our plate today. And the future is in God's hands to do what we're called to today. And the future's in God's hands. Harriet and I have sought to live by that principle in all of our ministries. And let me suggest to you this morning that if we do not have the faith to do what is right in front of us, we may fail the faithfulness test, faithfulness test for what lies ahead of us. Maybe this week, I don't know, you're facing a decision between what you are supposed to do today with faith but what you want to do for tomorrow. Can I say to you, obedience today is the pathway to hope. Obedience today is the pathway to hope. And as always, our example in all of these things, all of these things, is Jesus. He was faithful to the word. He was faithful to what lay before him. He did not live by bread alone, but by every word that came from the mouth of his father. He lived under the authority of his father. He was faithful in the shadow of the cross. Hebrews says to us, remember Jesus, who for the joy that he would set before him, in other words, that's what he would get in the future. He endured the cross. That's what he had to face today. And he lived out the tension, the tension between the faith to obey and the faith to hope. 
So Revelation says to this church that gets A's from God, take hold of what you have so that no one will take away your crown. So how might God measure success in his church? Where does God give all A's? Not in terms of size. Not in terms of status. But by a single word. A single word. Faithfulness. Can I tell you something? About 15 minutes ago, in this place, I felt it and I heard it. It got very, very quiet. There was a stillness that was not there before when I started. And I wonder in that stillness, if God is saying his word to some of you this morning. And that's what you came to hear. Maybe online this morning. That is what you came to hear. That came about 15 minutes ago. May I invite you to stand? The worship team is going to come back. Let me take you back to that story in Genesis 22 for just a moment as we finish. And remember, it is much more than a story about Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son. It is a story about your future. If Isaac is killed, where will the future of Israel be told? If Isaac is killed, the story comes to an end. It's a story about the tension between the present and the future, between the faith to obey and the faith to hope, between obedience and promise. And what the story teaches us is that there are times that we feel the tension between doing what seems to be right in the present for the immediate. But if we do that, that very action will seem to destroy our future and our hope. So the question is, what are we to do when obedience today will seem to kill our hope for tomorrow? Faithfulness says that we do what is right in front of us. With faithfulness, we address what is on our plate today. And the future is in God's hands. Is that something that you need to act on and act out this week? We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. 
And it would mean so much to us if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's one of the best ways you can help us spread the truth of the gospel online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.